What can we say about Jude so far? It's been a harsh book. James Moffat was right that the book of Jude is a fiery cross to rouse the church. And if you've been on any of these studies, you've been roused a little bit by the language and the manner with which Jude writes this little but very poignant epistle. He's been denouncing heresy. He's been outraged because certain men have crept in, verse 4, crept in unawares. They've come into the assembly. They've brought in new doctrines, new revelations. And some of the people were buying into them because it's human nature to want something new, even if it's not biblical. It's new. It's different. Listen to it. And that had been causing such a commotion and a confusion among the church that Jude, wanting to write a letter of encouragement, was detoured, he says in verse 3, by the Holy Spirit, to write a letter of exhortation telling them to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Verse after verse in this book has been like thunder and lightning, judgment, admonition, exhortation. Beware, watch out, look out for them. Judgment is coming. And it's been tough, actually, for me to week after week go through some of these concepts, but God wrote it for a purpose. However, tonight there's a change. After the thunder and the lightning comes the gentle rain in verse 20. And notice the transition after all that we've read so far. But you, beloved. (laughs) That's great. He's speaking about them, what God will do to them, what they have done to the church. Then there's the contrast. But you, beloved or loved of God, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Do you remember the story? I I know you do, so it's a rhetorical question. The story of the prodigal son. Almost everybody knows that one, even if you're not a believer. The prodigal son was a young guy, presumably a teenager, who had a large inheritance coming by his father. He got tired of waiting for it. He got tired of serving his dad, and he wanted it now. So he said, Dad... Give me what my inheritance is. Give it to me now. This younger brother or this younger son of the father went out, squandered everything he had on riotous living, partying, just having a great time. After all, he knew what it was like to take life by the horns and have a great time until he ran out of money. When he ran out of money, he had to work for a living. And when he was working for a living, he was working feeding the pigs. And eventually he was so hungry that he had to eat pig slop. It was in desperation that he came to his senses. And he said, man, even my dad's servants have it better off than his son. I will return to my father and ask him to hire me as a servant. Though the prodigal son left and squandered his dad's inheritance, his father loved him. His father wished that he would return. And it's evidenced by the fact when the son comes home, dad's there with his arms out, saying, that which is lost is found. And he loved his son. He loved his son during the entire episode of his son leaving home. But the son, though loved by dad, was not experiencing the love of his father. He was not keeping himself in the love of his father. 
And that's really the central thrust of these two verses, is keeping yourself in the love of God. That's what we want to talk about tonight. That's the main theme of these verses. Keep yourselves. Now, God will keep you in salvation, but you have to keep yourself in the love of God. There's no doubt God wants to keep you. The question is, do you want to be kept? Now, what I'd like to do tonight, in the time that we have, is talk about what it means to be in the love of God, and then kind of go back through some of the verses in a quick review, because you could look at the book of Jude in retrospect. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Here's all the people who didn't do it, but you do it. And we'll kind of quickly peruse what we've covered so far. When it says keep yourselves in the love of God, it does not mean keep yourself in a place where God will always love you because God loves you regardless. And you have to keep that as a foundational truth. You can't make God love you any more than He does. If you could, then there would be a flaw in God's basic nature because God, the Bible says, is love, agape love, unconditional love. And if you can make God love you more, it means His love has conditions and there's a flaw in His character. So it doesn't mean... Get to a place where God will love you more or will you will be loved by God. It has nothing to do with that. Nor does it mean your love for God. The idea here is keep yourself in a place where you're always experiencing the benefits of God's love. Turn back a couple chapters to 1 John, a couple books. 1 John chapter 4. And look at verse 16. He says, We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Verse 18. There is no fear in love. We covered this a couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. The idea is that you keep yourself in a place where you're enjoying, recognizing, and experiencing the benefits of God's love. Not making God love you any more than He does love you. If you go out in the sun, you can't keep the sun from shining, but you could put an umbrella that would keep you from experiencing the sun. Or to use another example, if it's a nice warm day and you're on a side of a mountain and the sun is shining on the southern side of the peak. You could go to the northern side of the mountain and be in the shadow, and though the sun is bright and the air is warm in every other place, you could be freezing. You're experiencing coolness, not warmth. You're not keeping yourself in a place where you're enjoying the benefits, the productivity of that sunshine and that warmth. That's sort of the idea that John has here. One commentator, a German fellow by the name of Robert Lenski, wrote a book on Jude, and this is how he explained it. To keep oneself in God's love is to stay where God can love us as his children and shower upon us all the gifts of love that he has for those who are his children. If you happen to have a living Bible, Kenneth Taylor translates it this way. Stay always within the boundaries where the love of God can reach you and can bless you. Experts tell us that a child, for him to thrive, needs to know that mom and dad love him unconditionally. 
That's experienced by words, by touch, by example and demonstration. But that kid needs to know that mom and dad always care, are always there. A connection of love has been made and that child can thrive. Well, God's children, in order to grow and thrive, need to be knowing and experiencing, like John says in 1 John. We know and we believe the love that God has for us. The minute you disbelieve God's love towards you, the minute you doubt that, your growth is stunted. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You can spurn God's love for you. You can't change it. You can run from it. The world does. The world doesn't experience the love of God. The prodigal son didn't experience the love of God, and he experienced the consequences of not keeping himself in the love of God. Judas Iscariot was loved, but did he keep himself in the love of God? Even though Jesus at the Last Supper was trying to reach out to Judas, was trying to show him love by actually giving him a place of honor at the table, Judas did not keep himself. And and he was a little bit skitty that night at the Last Supper when he had to get up knowing that he had to betray Jesus. Though he was loved by God, he didn't keep himself in the love of God. But contrast Judas with another apostle, John, who was at the other side of Jesus. And what did he do? He leaned his head where? On the bosom, the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. John kept himself in the love of God. In fact, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. There is one thing John knew, and that is that he was loved by Jesus and he kept himself close and in intimacy with him. And so you might say, to keep yourself in the love of God is to keep in an intimate place of relationship with Him, abiding with Him. You guys are close. You acknowledge the Lord constantly during your day. You're aware of His love. You remind yourself of His love. Even though a tragedy comes up, you say, I still know that God loves me. And you meditate upon those truths. There was an elderly gentleman, a grandfather, who was walking with his grandson... They left home. They were going through the woods one afternoon. And uh, Grandpa started quizzing his grandson. He said, uh, How far are you away from home right now? The little boy said, I don't know. Kept walking very confidently. Well, uh, which way is home? Could you point which direction? He goes, Nope, I have no idea. Kept walking confidently. And Grandpa finally said, uh, That sounds to me like you're lost. Kid said, no, I'm not lost. I'm with you. That is a great idea. It's a good concept to grasp. There are times I know that you walk through the week, through this world, and you might feel a little bit disoriented and lost. But you need to remind yourself like that little kid, I'm not lost, no problem. I'm with God. I'm with him. I'm with dad. He loves me. He's not going to let me get into something that's not good for me. All things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. Keep yourself in the love of God. Now, go back to verse 5 for just a moment. And let's go down a few verses and looks at, look at some groups of people in review who did not keep themselves in the love of God. Three groups. First of all, the nation of Israel, verse 5. But I want to remind you that though you once knew this, The Lord, having saved the people, that is, the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. God took 
about two and a half million of his people out of Egypt. And God did miracles. A cloud, a pillar was leading them by day, a fire by night. God gave them manna from heaven. God gave them quail. God opened the rock up and gave them water. And yet, an incident happened. Several incidents happened. And Israel didn't keep their end of the bargain. It happened in the book of Numbers. We won't turn to it because we've done it already in this study, but by review, remember in Numbers 14, after 12 spies go out and they come back after seeing the land of Canaan, and uh, 10 of them say, Moses, it's not God's will that we go over there. There's big guys, big, big, big guys, giants. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Besides that, there's a lot of cities with these huge walls we'll never, ever, ever overtake. But Joshua and Caleb said, oh, chickens. I'm paraphrasing the story. There'll be bread for us. God is on our side. God made a promise. Let's go in and take the land. These were two men filled with faith, knowing that God made a promise. And if God made a promise, our responsibility is not to completely understand it, but to totally believe it. And so they believed it. Simple, childlike, what some would call stupidity. I just believe that God's going to give us the land. It looks impossible. Let's go for it. Let's go for broke. But the ten spies with the bad report convinced the rest of the children of Israel not to go. At that point, that act of disbelief, that's what it means when it says they did not believe, caused their destruction. The entire generation who refused to believe God's promises died in the wilderness and the whole new generation had to come up. And though God made his promises, the children of Israel, loved by God, God said it over and over again, failed to keep themselves at a place where they experienced God's love and they turned to disbelief rather than to belief. And so, though God promised them Canaan, they never enjoyed it. That's a warning to us. There are some who, though they have God's promises, they never enjoy them. Oh, they know them, they have their Bible, and they believe in Jesus Christ, but they really never enter into a full experience of just believing the promises of God and living victoriously. They just sort of eke their way all the way through, and many, even it seems, die in the wilderness out of dryness. There's a story that comes to us from Alberta, Canada. The old chief of the Blackfoot Indians, his name was Crowfoot, gave permission to the Canadian Pacific Railroad to cross Blackfoot land all the way, I think, from Medicine Hat to Calgary in Canada. Because of that, they gave him a lifetime railroad pass. You know what he did with it? He put it in a little leather pouch around his neck and never used it. He could have had free transportation. If you added up all the money for all the miles, it would be a considerable amount, but he just stuffed it in a little pouch and never used it. He had a promise... The promise did him no good. He never enjoyed the promise. So it was with Israel. God loved them, but they failed to keep themselves in the love of God. What do you do with the promises of God? I know that you underline them, and some of you have them, little plaques on your wall. They look really good next to the flowers. And There's a little promise box in the kitchen, like a little bread basket, a little bread loaf, and you can pull out a promise. But what do you do with those promises? Do you live by them? Do you enjoy them? By enjoying them, keeping yourself in the love of God? 
or are they just cute little decorations? There's a lot of people who sing standing on the promises, but they're only sitting on the premises. I mean, that's as far as it goes. They come, they sit, they listen, but they never really enjoy those promises that God meant for them to stand on. God loves them. But as John says, we know and we believe the love God has for us. To have God love you and to keep yourself in the love of God is two different things. Next, verse 6. Another group who failed to keep themselves in the love of God were the angels who before this creation fell. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains until darkness for the judgment of the great day. Of course, he's speaking about a couple different passages in the Old Testament that deal with Lucifer, who at one time was like one of God's right-hand hand men in the angelic realm. He was the anointed cherub who covers. But pride lifted up his heart. He wasn't content with just being numero uno minus uno. He wanted to be numero uno uno. And so he rebelled, wanting the world to worship him. He said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. You can read it in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. And God cast him down in his rebellion. Now here's the ironic thing. Here is a being, and in this case, a whole set of angels. Lucifer, Satan, and a third of the angels with him. Who were in the very presence of God. Who knew what it was like to be in direct contact with Almighty God. And had such a unique position of being the anointed cherub who covers. And had a tremendous ministry. And yet, pride lifted up his heart. Knowing the love of God, he failed to keep himself in the love of God. And he fell from that great place. Next example of a group is found in verse 7. Sodom and Gomorrah. A couple of cities that had tremendous natural blessings and resources given to them by God. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. As I read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, we belabored that in one entire study or two, if I'm not mistaken. Sodom and Gomorrah lived, if you were to visit (laughs) the location of ancient Sodom and Gomorrah today, you would wonder at what I'm about to say. But it is true, in those days it was a well-watered plain. It was lush green. Of course, the Dead Sea today looks anything but lush and green. It looks pretty hostile. But at one time, history tells us, and even archaeology tells us, that that area enjoyed some of the greatest natural benefits and resources. It was a productive city. Uh, The people were intelligent in that city. They had built the kind of economy that was stable and strong, but they had a lot of idle time. Many lingering around the gates of the city. And in their idleness and in their prosperity, the lust of the flesh overtook them. And it says here in this verse that they become an example to us. What happened to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, I think, is happening today. It's happened and it's happening in an accentuated fashion. In their idleness and in their prosperity, they became desensitized to sin. It became so abundant. Sexuality was becoming such a god, such an idol. 
and from sexual promiscuity to homosexuality, it became so widespread that people just became desensitized to it. It was just everywhere. And then the next step came where these sexual appetites became very aggressive so that they went up to the angels who were in the house, knocked on the door, and the host lot opened up and said, Hello, can I help you? And these men off the street said, Yeah, you've got a couple of strangers. We'd like to have sex with them. And they tried to force their way in the door to have sexual relationships. And uh, the angels of God blinded their eyes and showed judgment. In our country, according to a Nielsen report on television, a recent survey said, the average American has a television set on in his home approximately seven hours a day, and people from the ages of 12 to 18 years of age, kids, on an average, see about 28 hours of television every week. In those television shows, I know because I've seen them too, When you see a lot of the kind of stuff that's portrayed, you become desensitized to it. I mean, even when you see some of the shows about Somalia and suffering around the world, you've seen it so often. And that's really the drawback of the media being so graphic is that after a while, your psyche just shuts off to it. You become desensitized. So it's there again. What else is on? Does it affect the way people think? You betcha. Without a doubt. There's been more studies on that that it would be ridiculous to try to prove that with statistics. It does affect the way we think and the values that we hold. There was an 18-year-old college student from the East, grew up in a home like this, and he was quoted as saying, quote, Sex is conquest. Love is surrender. Who wants to surrender? Can you imagine an attitude of an 18-year-old saying that? Love is surrender. Sex is conquest. Who wants to surrender? That's his outlook on life. Based upon all that's been fed into him, that's his worldview. Who wants to surrender? Very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. When a society rejects God, they reject the basis and the source of dignity. And if you want to see where a society goes, indeed, if you want to see the future of this country, read Romans 1. Who, knowing God, it says, well, let's look at it. At least I'll turn to it and read it because my mind draws a blank and if I can't quote it right, why quote it at all? Verse 21, Romans chapter 1. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, 
committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their heirs, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing... As I read it, it sounds like the headlines of the paper I read this morning. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. That's the future of this country apart from a radical repentance. And I mean a radical one. What's God going to judge this country? He already is. He'll give them over to those desires. That is the judgment of God. It's not lightning from heaven. He gives them over and they suffer the consequences. There's no restraint. All of these three groups in Jude are examples that show that privilege brings mega responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. And just because Israel was Israel, because they didn't believe, they failed to keep themselves in the love of God. The angels who sinned in fellowship with God failed to keep themselves in the love of God. Sodom and Gomorrah, blessed by God with natural resources, failed to keep themselves in the love of God. Now as we go on, uh, in verse 11, we see some individuals who didn't keep themselves in the love of God. Again, by review, we've gone through this book, but it's been so many months ago that we've covered it. We'll just touch on it. Verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Three people mentioned, a prophet, a prince, and an ordinary person. All who failed to keep themselves in the love of God. Which tells me that no one is exempt from stumbling. The Bible says, if you see somebody that's overtaken with a fault that you who are spiritual should restore that person in the spirit of meekness. Considering who? Yourself. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So first of all, we have Cain, the guy who brought a sacrifice to the Lord along with his brother Abel. God had respect to Abel's sacrifice, didn't respect Cain's sacrifice. And because he was jealous, he murdered his brother. In 1 John, we read a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning, the motivation for the murder was envy, jealousy. Let me read it to you. He says, We should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And why did he kill him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. Envy will keep you from the love of God rather than in the love of God. When you're envious... Because somebody else is blessed by God and you don't have what that person has, that envy can lead you to not experiencing the love of God. Let me read you a dictionary definition of envy. Quote, A discontent or uneasiness at the sight of another's good fortune accompanied with a degree of hatred. Envy that leads to hatred that steals away the experience of the love of God in your heart. So Cain... Next on the list, Balaam. Balaam, who was a prophet, 
But he was a prophet not mastered by God, but mastered by greed. Briefly, here's the story. The children of Israel, at the end of their journeys, were about to go into the land of Canaan after wandering around for 40 years because they didn't believe God the first time. As they're approaching the border of the land, Moab and Midian, Balak the king of these countries, decides to send for a prophet in the east named Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel because Balaam had the reputation that whoever he curses will be cursed. God says, Balaam, don't go. Finally, he says, when you go, don't curse them. So several times, Balaam looks over the camp of these millions of Israelites and instead of cursing them, he blesses them, which makes Balak really ticked off. He says, buddy, I brought you a long way to give you a lot of money to curse these people and you bless these people. I want you to curse them. But every time he showed them the camp of Israel, Balaam said, blessed be the Lord, the children of Israel gave this beautiful blessing. But instead of going home and just forgetting the whole incident, Balaam was thinking in his greedy little mind, I want that gold. I want that money. And it's a lot of money. I can't curse these people. God might kill me. But I know what I can do. And he says, listen, I can't curse these people. God has blessed them. God's protected them. But I'll give you a way that you can get them to bring a curse on themselves. You have some beautiful young chicks here in the Moabite and Midianite camp. They're gorgeous girls, and they happen to be idol worshippers. And I know that the practice of idolatry is that there's sexual activity that take place during the, your worship of your foreign god. So have these beautiful young women go into the camp of Israel and seduce these young men. Tell them how handsome they are. And then as they're seducing them into sexual immorality, they can set up their little idols, which is your custom. And because the children of Israel will have fallen into sexual immorality and idolatry, God said that he would curse them for it. And so the Midianites and the Moabites did just that. The women went into the camp and God cursed the children of Israel. And by the thousands, many of them perished. A prophet mastered by greed. Greed can keep you from experiencing the love of God. Envy and greed. Do something inside the heart of a human being where he doesn't know and experience the love of God. He questions it. He doubts it because he's been mastered by those vices. Then we have in the same verse, Korah. Korah was Moses' cuz. He was related to Moses. He was of the priestly tribe. He was a Kohathite. That is, he had a unique position of authority among the children of Israel. But this man was envious of Moses' ministry. So he goes to Moses one day with a couple other fellas, Abiram and Dathan and 250 other people of Israel. And he says, Moses, who made you to be the ruler here? You're no better than anybody else. We want to be in charge. To make the long story short, the earth opened up and swallowed them and they kicked the bucket. But there's another example of an individual who failed to keep himself in the love of God. He was mastered by being envious of another person's position. Instead of loving that person, he envied the person. He complained and he murmured against the authority that God had established. Let me remind you of what A.W. Tozer said. The essence of sin is rebellion against divine authority. And that's exactly where Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and the 250 jokers that got swallowed up by the ground were at. They failed to keep themselves in the love of God. They let complaining take the better of them. 
And so everything they saw was through this lens of, it's not good enough. That's not good enough. They did that wrong. Moses did that wrong. They didn't keep themselves in the love of God. Now, we get to verse 20. And here's the switch. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, here's three ways in these verses on how you can keep yourself in the love of God. Three ways, and they're all found in these verses. Building, praying, and looking. You can see them, they're there. Look for yourself. Building, praying, and looking. Verse 20, number one. Building yourselves up on the most holy faith. You want to keep yourself in the love of God, you need to have some kind of a method by which you are being reminded of the promises of God consistently, daily. To remind yourself of how much God loves you. Remind yourself of the promises of God. As you are reminding yourself of the promises of God, your inner man gets built up. As you're fed the scripture, you become strong. You don't walk around doubting that God loves you because you're filled with the promises of God. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Now that corresponds with verse 3. Look at it. Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. That's exactly what Jude does in most of his book. He he puts up a good fight. That's what the word means. He fights for the faith. And Jude comes at this epistle sort of with gunpowder, with a gun in his hand. He's mad at the heretics. And he's defending the faith. And you need to defend the faith. But at the same time, you need to build yourself up in the faith. God won't build you up if you don't build yourself up. If you just sit there and go, okay, here I am, God. I'm a vegetable for the Lord. I just want to grow. You won't grow. That's right. You won't grow. There are things, now listen carefully, there are things you have to do to grow. It sounds like salvation by work. It has nothing to do with salvation. You're saved. You are saved just as saved as you were the day you accepted Christ and He washed you with His blood. You're saved today. You follow Jesus Christ. But you have to build yourself up. Let me show you how this works. Turn over to Peter. Second Peter, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. You've received Christ by faith. You have it. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter says, there it is. Everything you need to grow and be strong, God has given to you in his promises. Man, you are so wealthy with the promises of God. But if you stop right there and don't do anything about those promises, you won't grow. You'll die on the vine. Verse 5 continues the thought. 
but also for this very reason. Now stop. For what reason? It refers back to the verses that precede it. For the very reason of spiritual growth, for the very reason that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness and precious promises that we can overcome the world, for that reason, giving all diligence. You want to know a better translation? It's putting every bit of effort into it. Giving all diligence. Add. Better translation? Lavishly supply. To your faith. Add to your faith virtue. Add to your virtue knowledge. Add to your knowledge self-control. To self-control perseverance. To perseverance godliness. To godliness brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and they abound or overflow, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? God's given you everything. Now, use them. Draw out of the bank account some of those riches for life and godliness that God has given you to grow spiritually. Use the promises of God. If you do, you'll always be growing. You'll never be unfruitful. Well... Let's go on, verse 9. But he who, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, then you will never stumble. So in one hand you need a sword, in the other hand you need a trowel. Let me explain that. The book of Nehemiah. As they're building the wall, Nehemiah and everybody else has a sword in one hand because they're fighting the enemies. In the other hand, they had a trowel. And they would build up the wall, but they'd fight the enemy. And as Christians, you need to defend the faith, but you need to build yourself up in the faith. If you go all around all day defending the faith and looking for cults, you'll dry up. If you go away and forget defending the faith and just, I'm going to build myself up and forget about everybody else and forget about defending the faith, that's out of balance as well. So you need to defend the faith, verse 3, but you need to build yourself up in it by reminding yourselves daily and weekly and monthly and yearly continually of the promises of God. And you build yourself up in the faith. Then he says praying in the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot of ideas as to what that verse could mean, but plainly put it means prayer that is governed by the Spirit of God. Praying in the Spirit. And I think what Jude means since he was writing in the midst of Gnostic heresy, to pray in the Spirit is the antithesis of praying mechanically or presumptuously. It's your prayer governed by the Spirit. Your thoughts of your prayer are to glorify the Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And with those right motivations governed by the Holy Spirit, even when you don't know what to pray for, but your heart is right to glorify God, awesome things happen. Let me remind you of a promise in Romans. Paul said, We don't always know what to pray for, but the Spirit helps our weakness and intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Building, praying, and then looking. And so let's look at that looking. Verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto Eternal life. The word in this verse, looking, literally means to expect the fulfillment of God's promises. 
This is how it works. I am aware in my Christian life of a certain promise that Jesus made to return to this earth for his saints. To return for his saints and we'll be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And I'm aware that he could come at any time. As I look at history, as I look at the future, as I look at what's happening prophetically in our world, I am convinced, this is my personal conviction, that we are living toward the end of the ages and that Jesus Christ, seriously, could come back for his church at any moment. Because I am conscious of that, that he could come back for me at any moment, that causes me to be careful how I live, to be careful what I do, how I act, what I say. Because I know that I am living on borrowed time. And even if the Lord doesn't come back, my life is pretty short. I've lived about, if I go according to the median age, I've lived about half of it. I don't know when by God's mercy he'll take me home by the rapture or by death, whatever. But because I live in that awareness that he could come back, I am purified. It keeps me in the love of God, praying, building myself up, and anticipating the promise of his return. One of the most purifying things you can ever believe in is the fact that Jesus Christ could come for his church soon. Now, I know a lot of people, and I've talked to a lot of them, who say, well, these Christians who believe that the rapture could come soon, at any moment, they live lazy lives. Oh, I beg your pardon. I think the opposite is true. I think Christians who truly believe in the coming of the Lord, as the Bible says, soon for his church, live aggressive Christian lives. In fact, I think the people who say, oh, that'll never happen until after this event or that event, it's a long ways away, fall into the category that Jesus said of the wicked and slothful servant who says, my Lord delays his coming. And they turn to riotous living. But when you know that Jesus could come back at any moment, you live pure. Again, let me remind you of what John said in his book, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we'll be like him. For we will see him as he is. And every man that has this hope, the return of Jesus, purifies himself even as he is pure. Let me give that to you literally. Whoever has this hope continually set on him constantly is constantly purifying himself. My hope is not in the coming of the Lord. My hope is in the Lord who is coming. That's different. That's very different. It's not like, I want the big escape, man. I don't want to have to pay higher taxes. And I don't want to have to pay the house off. I'd rather like stack the credit card up and have the Lord come back so I don't have to be responsible for my payments. That's not it at all. My hope isn't in the event. It's in the one who's coming at that event. And that purifies a believer. Building yourself up in the faith. The faith is this book, folks. That's, that's what it means. The faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints, verse 3. It's a common description of the Word of God. Acts chapter 2, they gave themselves continually to the apostles' doctrine. Built yourself up on the faith. Pray, governed by the Spirit. Anticipate the coming of the Lord and you'll be pure. And you'll keep yourself in the love of God, unlike these groups and unlike these individuals who are negative examples. People who fail to keep themselves in the love of God. I love the story of that soldier who was in the war, the Vietnam War. And when he was over in Vietnam, he avoided all of the temptations that many soldiers fall into in places like that. 
They're in places where their wives are not, their children are not, their girlfriends are not, and a lot of them get very loose. And there was a soldier who decided not to play around, but to keep himself pure. And the soldiers used to bug him all the time, and they'd say, how come you don't uh, have a little fun while you're over here? And he said simply because there's a cute little gal back in the States whom I'm in love with, and I'm going to keep myself for her. I'm going to keep myself pure, because one day I'm going to go back home, and I want to look her in the eyes and know I've been pure. I've kept myself for her. Well, just around the corner is the Savior who's coming for you. Wouldn't it be great to say, Lord, I've anticipated your coming. I've kept myself in your love. I've kept myself pure for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promises of the Word of God. At the same time, there's a warning to us, like the children of Israel who had the same promises, but they never entered into the land. They never mixed those promises with faith, we are told. And because of that, they they dried up. Lord, I pray that we would diligently give ourselves to the promises of Scripture Remind ourselves with whatever Bible study method you've given us to stay close to you, to abide, to be intimate, to pray continually. May that be second nature to us. And Lord, as we build ourselves up in the faith, the Word of God, and in prayer, I pray that our thoughts would be of the future that we would keep one eye in heaven and another eye on this earth, walking responsibly, but waiting in an anticipating manner, eagerly for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.